Thanks, everybody, for uh, being with us this, this morning. We're going to get this next panel started. Um, I think this is going to be a really great panel because up here we've got three people who've been involved very hands-on way actually making monetary policy. We have somebody who's been doing it at the ECB, two guys who've done it at the Federal Reserve and have that real experience, you know, being in the room, advising top policymakers, actually making some of the decisions. It's going to be a really great it's going to be a really great panel. Uh, the topic of this discussion is, is monetary mischief and the debt trap. Money mischief, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the expression, but 30 years after Milton Friedman's famous history of monetary history of the United States, he wrote a book called Money Mischief. And it was a series of vignettes about episodes in history where monetary policymakers had maybe gotten a little bit carried away and had made some mistakes. And I think kind of the question for today's panel is whether or not we've lived through another one of those vignettes just now and whether or not our, our central banks are currently uh, up to monetary mischief themselves. And uh, specifically, you know, how that interplays with the tremendous amount of government debt um, that we have in the United States and whether or not uh, we've kind of gotten ourselves into a trap where the debt is so high that at some point the cost of servicing that debt will be unmanageable and we'll be able to get out of it. So we're going to hear three different views on this very interesting topic from three very interesting uh, practitioners and, and scholars of the craft of central banking. Uh, the first one we're going to hear from is Athanasios Orphanidis, who's a professor of the practice of global economics and management at MIT. He was a... Uh, he was, the he was the governor of the Central Bank of Cyprus from 2007 to 2012, and in that role was also on the governing council of the ECB. Uh, Dr. Efrenides. Uh, thank you, Josh. Uh, uh, first, let me uh, thank Cato uh, and, and Jim Dorm in particular for inviting me. It's always fun to come here and, uh, and have debates about, about central banks in this, in this setting. Uh, the second thing I'm going to do is, is, is add a little bit to, uh, to the introduction. Actually, all three of us are Fed people uh, in, in one, uh, in one uh, form or another. Uh, most of what I learned in central banking, I, I learned from uh, Constitution uh, Street, uh, a few blocks uh, uh, away from uh, from here. Now I, I'm so glad that you that you uh, that you started the introduction mentioning uh, Milton Friedman. We always have so many uh, uh, so many things we can learn uh, rereading uh, his his material. And uh, uh, I'm going to start with uh, uh, with something he uh, he wrote in the preface, both of Money Mischief that you already mentioned, and and in the Optimum Quantity of Money, uh, 1969. Uh, to, to put us in the uh, in the uh, in, in the mind frame, uh, monetary theory and monetary history, he went on to say in the uh, in in money mischief, um, uh, they they are both simple and complicated, uh, and um, uh, they have to be examined from many different angles and in depth to understand the complexity. So the topic of the session we have uh, is really a wonderful session: monetary policy, what central banks do and uh, debt dynamics. And I'm going to start by pointing out that uh, uh, we've got to first identify uh, where the origin of the problem that we will be discussing uh, uh, today is. The origin of the problem is not in central banks. The origin of the problem is with fiscal policy that may not be sound, creating uh, high debt problems, 
that then create all of these dilemmas. How do you deal with, uh, with over-indebtedness once, uh, once it's there? And what I want to do is, uh, uh, is, uh, is talk about uh, uh, the Fed, the BOJ, uh, and the ECB to bring a little bit of a, uh, of a global context of the difficulties that, that central banks have been facing as a result of the crisis. Uh, and then we can have a debate and judge their actions uh, uh, and, and criticize them more or criticize them less uh, as we uh, wish. So I'm going to, to, to start with, with a fact. This is a fact. Uh, there was limited fiscal space in the aftermath of the crisis, in part because debt was so high before the crisis. Uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the last uh, 20 years or so, uh, um, in the great moderation period, if you, if you wish, uh, the boom times were not used well to make sure that, that fiscal finances uh, would, be, uh, would be in good order. So when the crisis hit, crisis always uh, uh, create fiscal resources that created tensions for, uh, uh, for debt dynamics uh, and the linkages to monetary policy. And of course, monetary policy and fiscal dynamics are always linked, even though central banks, I mean, we know it very well, everybody on the inside, are so uncomfortable uh, so uncomfortable uh, talking about, uh, about, uh, about those links. Um, the, question, the question I want to, I want to discuss is, well, if you, are, if, you have a, if you have a list of bad options, what can you do? Can monetary policy reduce the risks associated with unsound fiscal policy? Well, we know one answer, in general, the low inflation, bad answer. So really the question is, can central banks do something that can at least allay the concerns without compromising price stability. That can be a very demanding proposition, uh, and this is, this, is, this is the comparison I want to get to. Some data, uh, Euro area and the United States, uh, are gonna talk about the uh, debt to GDP ratio. You can see how after 2007, they, uh, uh, they, rose, uh, uh, they rose quite a bit. Of course, I cannot really talk about euro area uh, debt since, uh, uh, since the euro area doesn't have a federal government. So for, for doing the comparisons of the euro, I'm gonna simplify and say, let me look at two states uh, that the ECB has to worry about, Italy and, uh, and Germany. You can, you can have a comparison here that uh, uh, Italian debt to GDP has risen pretty much in line with, uh, 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 with, uh, with US GDP, only the levels are much higher and German GDP has done well, this is one, of the, this is one of, the, of the issues that you need to be facing. How is the ECB supposed to be operating when, when there are divergences inside, uh, inside, the, uh, inside the euro area? And of course, the big elephant uh, in, uh, in the room is, is none of these countries, uh, is, is Japan. And here, here we should be looking at, okay, now let's look at the debt dynamics in four economies. Uh, Japan, Italy, Germany, the United States, what's going on? And what is the role of, uh, of central banking and monetary policy uh, in uh, containing concerns about debt dynamics in these, uh, uh, in these four economies? So I have three central banks, four economies that I want to, that I want to talk about. And the issue is, do we see fears uh, of a debt trap or monetary mischief uh, in the data? Well, monetary mischief, at this point, we do not see the fears of high inflation in, in none of these economies. We don't see that. Um, as a matter of fact, despite the data I just showed you, uh, there is uh, very little evidence of, of credit risk, let's say, in Japanese debt data. Japan, Japan's debt is considered about as safe as, as German and US debt. 
And it's, it's, it's a bit strange here, let me go back to this one. Italian debt is the one we, are, we, are, uh, we hear in the news, uh, uh, maybe a credit risk uh, these, uh, these days, despite the fact that, boy, if you compare Japan and, and Italy, uh, what's wrong with Italy here? Uh, it depends on how you look at these things. So what are the debt dynamics? Uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is where, you know, I'm an academic, so I, I, I'm supposed to show an equation, I think. So here's the equation. Uh, uh, so on debt dynamics, uh, debt to GDP ratio, uh, what defines whether debt is sustainable or not, the key was already mentioned uh, 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 earlier is, uh, uh, is whether economies grow whether the real interest rate uh, on, uh, on, on servicing existing government debt is higher or lower than, than the real growth rate. This is really what is driving that dynamics. Sound fiscal policy can determine uh, a path for the primary deficit that can also fix a problem, but really uh, um, uh, the key uh, is uh, over the long run whether the real interest rate uh, is gonna be lower than the real growth in the economy uh, or not. It's very important to understand here what, what, the, what the role of growth rates is. You may have a high debt level that uh, may be entirely sustainable and safe if you are in an economy where you're growing well, or vice versa. So what are some of the, some of the uh, policies that can push an economy to a debt trap? Well, if you kill growth, then you're in a debt trap. If you deliver too low inflation or deflation, I, I define this as whatever the price stability objective of the central bank is, if the central bank fails to deliver uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the inflation rate consistent with that and delivers lower inflation, uh, that actually would raise the likelihood of a, uh, of a debt trap. And then there are other policies. Uh, uh, in the United States, we are not used to them, but uh, in other parts of the world, we see them. There are policies that may raise uh, the uh, default risk associated with public debt, uh, and those policies would also raise the, uh, um, um, the risk that an economy may be pushed into uh, a debt trap. How do you avoid a debt trap? Well, I have four bullets, and the first one is the, uh, uh, is the easiest one to, to think of as if you have sound fiscal policy, then debt traps never actually show up. But of course, uh, fiscal policy is not something that is under the control of central banks. If we have a problem and we start with an ugly problem and then we look at the central bank and ask, okay, can you do something to help? Then what, what, are, the, what are the options that are left? And here I will identify three. Inflation, bad outcome. Real growth, good outcome, but real growth is something that can only be influenced by policy uh, in the short term if we take the view, uh, as, as I generally do, that in the long, in the long run, potential output growth uh, uh, is not gonna be determined uh, um, by and large by, by monetary policy. And then you have the third one, which is a terrible, terrible thing that I want to put to the table here, financial repression. This is an option for the central banks. If a central bank is dealt a terrible hand by the fiscal authorities, and you are being asked, help us out so that we don't default, what do you do? You say, I don't want to generate inflation. I can generate as much growth as I can, but it may not be enough. The next option I have is financial repression. And for all of the inefficiencies and distortions that financial repression uh, may create, we want to keep in mind that it may end up being the best of 
the alternative uh, outcomes uh, that may be available uh, to a central bank that desires to, uh, to keep price stability uh, over time. So let me show you some examples of how these things work. Fed, ECB, and, uh, and the BOJ, three central banks, four states. For the ECB, I have, I have Italy and Germany. Uh, all four states were adversely affected by the 2008 uh, crisis. All three central banks had to face the difficulty of uh, uh, reaching the zero lower bound, meaning uh, short-term uh, interest rates were constrained to be close to zero. Yeah, we can't go negative, which I don't think is such a good idea. But even if, even if a central bank does decide to go negative, there are, there are serious limits to that. Uh, so what do you do about that? These are the things I want, to, I want to mention when I turn out, and we've seen, we've seen how, how central banks have dealt with this with quantitative easing. But I want to mention two other elements when we do a comparison. Uh, if, we, if we look at Japan, one of the four countries I, uh, I, I look at, Japan was already experiencing mild deflation before the crisis. Uh, you know, the, the whole, all of the 2000s, the whole decade, uh, was, a, was a problematic decade, even before the crisis, for, before the global financial crisis for Japan. That's one element. And then for the, uh, for the ECB, we need, to, we need to, uh, uh, to keep in mind that the ECB is facing its own unique challenges uh, associated with, uh, with a terrible setup of the euro area and then governance problem uh, that is associated with, uh, uh, with, with the euro crisis. But let, let me go back to monetary policy. So uh, here's a reminder of what uh, overnight interest rates uh, have looked like. Uh, and yes, uh, as we've heard this morning, these are not normal times uh, when, for so many years, uh, short-term interest rates are effectively around uh, 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 zero. Uh, so you can see how the zero, how the zero lower bound has been constraining in some fashion uh, uh, policy. Um, I would be uh, in the camp that would argue that uh, after the global financial crisis, 2008, 2009, 2010, it was important for central banks to ease policy much more than they could do with short-term interest rates, following uh, along the lines of what, uh, of what uh, Keynes uh, had originally proposed in 1930 uh, in, uh, in response to, uh, to the 1929 uh, uh, crash. This is quantitative easing. Uh, and we have seen quite a bit of quantitative easing around. Uh, the Fed adopted it uh, very early uh, after the 2008 crisis. I think it was a good thing. We may, we may have a debate and we may disagree about where policy is today, but I think it was a good thing for the Fed to, uh, to adopt uh, QE uh, in, uh, in 2008 and 2009 uh, and, and expand its balance sheet as needed to provide accommodation. Uh, the ECB adopted uh, QE only in 2015. So one of the comparisons we may have is to actually see that uh, if you don't do the right thing right away and you, and you, and you try to, to come into the game with, with a delay, this has consequences. And we know what, what the consequences are. Uh, the ECB has not managed to, to raise uh, the inflation rate to be anywhere close to its mandate, uh, uh, whereas the Fed is pretty much where it has defined uh, its mandate uh, to be. They have the, the BOJ was the only one of the central banks that had some experience with QE. But the, the BOJ's uh, QE, uh, for those of you who, have, who are following the BOJ at the time, in the early 2000s, it was really a half-hearted uh, QE exercise. Uh, the BOJ uh, tolerated mild deflation in, uh, uh, in Japan and was caught between those who are saying, no, 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 don't do QE, it's too unconventional, limited, and they kept staying with, with deflation. It's only in 2013, very, very late in the game, 
that, uh, that the BOJ turned decisive, but at least they have turned decisive since then. And this, 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 actually, this actually provides us with some fascinating monetary experiments that, uh, you know, if, if, if Friedman were to, uh, uh, to write another book, uh, if you could, uh, he would have put these vignettes uh, in, uh, in, this, uh, in this in debt. Let, let me just show you some of, some of the numbers. So these are, these are the latest data. We can index the size of the central banks, the, the size of the uh, balance sheet of the, of the central banks to 100 in August 2008, uh, before the crisis. So it's an index. And then we can see what happens. So, uh, so the Fed has a balance sheet right now that is five times as large. Humongous. Uh, the ECB uh, was kind of easing a little bit, and then they tightened from 2012 uh, uh, to 2015. Uh, then in 2015, they started QE. Uh, they're trying, but you know, not, not at the pace the Fed did it. And the BOJ, you can see since 2013, it's as, it's as if they're racing very fast, trying to, trying to raise the balance sheet. And the question is, what are the effects of these things? Well, these things do have effects. Um, we can actually see them in the, in the uh, financing cost of the government. So you can go to the IMF, uh, IFS data. And, uh, and get some indicator of, uh, of long-term uh, long financing cost that shows you the, uh, the interest rate uh, 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 the interest rate government has to, has to have to pay on their debt. You can see here how interest rates have come down uh, everywhere. In the case of the Fed, the blue line here, uh, uh, interest rates uh, should be on the rise. I mean, the economy is on demand uh, in the United States. I, I would call that a success of the earlier policy uh, accommodation. Uh, uh, let me not talk about the exit yet. I will mention that in, in a couple of minutes. Um, uh, there are real costs to the economy, depending on how you do these things. So here, here's a comparison. We may, hear compa we may hear complaints about Japan, but in terms of per capita and GDP, Japan has not been doing uh, much differently than the United States. Demographics is one of the reasons why growth is, is low in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Japan. Uh, if you look at what the ECB and, it, and its part had been delivering in Europe, you can see this tremendous divergence. Uh, I think it's appropriate that one should worry about Italy among these countries and not about, uh, about Japan when, uh, when you look at this, these comparisons. Uh, you can see this in this picture. So what can QE do? Well, QE can provide the short-term accommodation, and by effectively engineering financial repression, which is a terrible thing to do unless the alternatives are even worse, you can actually contain the financing cost of the government uh, and, uh, and, and help the government stay outside uh, a, uh, a debt trap. Let me show you very briefly, I have three, four minutes, uh, uh, how these things uh, would work in, uh, in, the different, in the different economies. So, Take the BOJ, really fascinating to see what they have been doing over the last uh, uh, three years. Uh, April 2013, they engineered the quantitative and qualitative monetary easing. Uh, in January of this year, uh, they, uh, they were doing QQE with a negative interest rates. And uh, most fascinating is yet to come. In September, QQE with yield curve control, let me show you what that is. And today, as I understand, they are threatening to really uh, uh, peg the, uh, the, long, the long yield uh, uh, at, at around zero. Look what they've announced in September of 21 and, and how you can help a country stay out of a debt trap. They're going to keep short-term rates negative. 
they're going to keep long-term rates at zero while they're raising inflation towards 2%. And they will keep buying government debt while they're doing that. This is how you use the power of the balance sheet in this example to try to get out of the debt mess that, uh, that, that Japan had. Let me show you what this does in terms of the numbers. You can use the IMF's projections of, uh, of debt to GDP ratio and uh, simply subtract the, uh, the BOJ holdings. Uh, the BOJ effectively is as if they are burning government debt by having a zero nominal cost of refinancing it, a, real, a, a negative real cost of refinancing, and putting it all on their books they're actually safeguarding uh, the, uh, the debt, the debt uh, health of the country. If you look at the ECB, not quite as good. The implementation of the ECB has been such that it's very beneficial for strong countries, Germany, for example, terrible for weaker countries. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but this is, this is a particular element of the structure of the euro area. They cannot solve all of, all of these problems. They are not solving all of these problems. So yes, in the euro area, you will have, you will have problems. And let me, let me end by, uh, by having one, uh, one brief remark about, about the Fed, our third central bank. Now, again, in my view, uh, it was appropriate for the Fed to ease early and buy a lot. It was appropriate. I have argued that, uh, that the exit may be delayed. Uh, we can discuss that. But if I focus on, on, the, easy, on, the, easing part, on the easing path, uh, that was appropriate uh, to a very large extent. Now, the balance sheet ended up being, being much bigger than, than people would, uh, would, have, uh, would have imagined uh, uh, a few years ago. And, and two questions that come up is, okay, as rates are hiked, should we be concerned about the balance sheet? And, and again, I think that the key here is uh, whether these policies combined with, uh, with fiscal policies are creating growth in the economy. Already, let me show you the IMS projections of, uh, uh, let me show you uh, the, uh, uh, using IMS projections of nominal, of nominal GDP, you can see that the size of the Fed balance sheet as a fraction of GDP has been declining uh, already in the last few years, and this projected to decline a lot. If you keep the nominal size of the balance sheet unchanged and you engineer nominal growth, that alone reduces the balance sheet. And in the case of the Fed, I think we shouldn't be worried about the need to reduce the balance sheet because we can drive this, this comparison further uh, what the Fed has done uh, uh, during this crisis is really not out, of, uh, uh, not out of historical precedence, very similar to what was done uh, in the 1930s, only it was done sooner and better in my view. And if we project the size of the balance sheet as a fraction of GDP, taking the IMF projections and then 4% nominal income growth uh, uh, for the next uh, few decades, we see that we can be back where we, where we were. So that's not the, that's, that should not be our primary concern in my view. Our primary concern, I'm gonna end with that, is unsound fiscal policy. Unsound fiscal policy, overburdened central banks can create these terrible dilemmas. Central banks can, within limits, trade off elements despite the associated distortions by engineering financial repression, they can create fiscal space and eliminate and, and avoid uh, even bigger problems for, for the government. This is where, this is where uh, QE comes in as, as well. So again, I'm closing by repeating this. Uh, we've got to watch it. We have to make sure that fiscal policy is in order if we want to eliminate uh, 
questions about money mischief going forward. Thank you. Our next speaker is Bob Heller, who was appointed to the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors by President Ronald Reagan in 1986 and served for three years. He's had an extremely interesting career aside from that as well. I won't go through the whole thing. It's in your programs. But he was a professor of economics at UCLA and the University of Hawaii, worked at the International Monetary Fund, uh, was a president of uh, CEO of Visa USA. So he's had a very interesting career as an academic, as a policymaker, and in the private sector. And we're really excited to hear from him right now. Thanks so much, Josh. I appreciate it. Uh, well, it's obviously very difficult to follow so many excellent speakers because virtually everything I want to say has been said already. But let me start with monetary mischief. Monetary mischief, uh, Tom Honig said it very well, that is a situation where the current monetary policy stance does not serve the long-term needs of the economy. And the debt trap, Professor Ofanidis just defined very elegantly in his uh, mathematical equations. What's the goal of the Federal Reserve policy? At the moment, they say we want to have price stability because that is our congressional mandate. Yet they define uh, price stability as 2% inflation. What does 2% inflation do? 2% inflation means that Every 35 years, the value of the currency has been cut in half. And every 70 years, some, many of us I see here have a lot of gray hair, a dollar value has shrunk down to 25 cents. In my view, a target range of 0 to 2% would have been a better uh, inflation target. Now, how did we get there? How did we get to that 2% target? In July 1996, there was an extensive discussion on whether the Federal Reserve should uh, adopt a inflation target. Inflation was running at around 3%. Alan Greenspan was the chair of the Federal Reserve. And Janet Yellen was a regular governor of the Federal Reserve Board. And she presented a paper. And after that, there was a long discussion. and. About one-third of the FOMC members, as far as I can read in the minutes, favored a zero inflation target. Alan Greenspan defined it, zero inflation means no change in the price level as long as inflation is properly measured. And as we all know, you know, inflation, there may be a slight bias, maybe a quarter percent, maybe half a percent in the price index measurement. Another third of the FOMC uh, wanted to move to 2% inflation, from 3% to 2% right now. So that's where a 2% number came in. And another third, they wanted to move lower, but cap inflation at 3%, sort of the normal rate, at uh, the current rate. So what did Greenspan do, having to sum up the entire discussion? He says, well, we have all agreed on a 2% inflation uh, consensus. But the next morning, he walked back into the meeting and he said, hey, we as unelected officials do not have the right to make that decision because Congress basically said we want price stability. And now the Federal Reserve was saying 2%. And he says, 
We don't have that right as unelected officials. And he went on. If the 2% inflation figure gets out of this room, it's going to create more problems for us than any of you might anticipate. Now, that's pretty strong words. But 15 years later, uh, Ben Bernanke officially led the Fed in adopting that 2% inflation target. Now, first of all, I have a problem with a point target. A point target is very difficult to hit. You would try to hit one point target. If you're at 1.8%, roughly where we are right now, the Fed is still arguing, oh, no, we've got to get inflation up. We're below our objectives. Well, today's inflation number was 0.4% and the CPI this morning. Uh, if we are pretty soon, we will be at 2.1%, 2.2%. The Fed wants to tighten. Are we really going to jerk back and forth all the time around that 2%? So we would have been a lot better off adopting a target range. And as I said before, a 0 to 2% target range may be uh, the right number to look at. Uh, we talked a lot about QE. QE did not make GDP in the United States grow. We've had the slowest recovery on record. Uh, here you see the growth rates of quantitative easing, a similar graph as Professor Ofanidis did already earlier. Uh, and at the bottom, the lines that you almost don't see, that is the growth rate of GDP. So there was a vast disconnect. Now, I agree that the initial stimulus was called for, the first QE phase after the, uh, after the 208 uh, crash, because it provided additional liquidity. But after that, QE2, QE3, you know, it's just like the fire department comes into your house, house is on fire, you turn the hoses on, put the fire out, and then they stand there for the next eight years with their hoses, right? I mean, that doesn't make sense. It ruins the whole economy. During that period of QE, the Federal Reserve consistently overestimated the effectiveness of QE. If you look at the left graph here, the bottom line shows the actual GDP growth. Those, I don't know what you call them up there, the spikes there, uh, they show what the Federal Reserve forecast was for GDP. So every time they were forecasting 2 or 3% more growth than they actually obtained. They were forecasting 4% growth two years out. And in reality, they got about 2%. And the Wall Street Journal, thanks to Josh, maybe you wrote the article, uh, had a wonderful chart in there where they showed the estimation error. And you can see that the estimation errors are way over on the right. In many cases, the errors were more than 100%. Uh, they estimated double the growth rate than they actually obtained. What were the unintended consequences of QE? Uh, again, my predecessors have talked about it a little bit. First of all, limited room for future stimulus is left. Second, there's a perverse effect on saving, as you have zero interest rates. And in Europe, the discussion is a lot more uh, vociferous on that topic than here in the United States. At zero interest rates, the German savers say, what are you doing to us? We don't make any money, and we have to save more. So they put more money into uh, into the mattress, and as a result, 
the economy is not growing because the intent of the policy is obviously to have people spending money to push the economy forward. And instead, the Germans are saving like crazy. In the United States, you see that as well. There's growing income inequality, and there's growing wealth inequality, and there are financial sector imbalances. So saying all that, what is happening? At the moment, everything looks pretty stable in the United States. Yet, the next Minsky moment is approaching. Now, Professor Hyman Minsky was one of my professors in Berkeley, and he always liked to say, every expansion creates the seeds of its own destruction. Stability itself is destabilizing because it sets up new uh, imbalances. For instance, We've had a very low interest rate environment. And as John Allison, I don't know if he's still here, as he told us a little bit earlier, the banks had a hard time. Here you see the bank margin compression that took place the last uh, 20 years. Bank margins are going down. That is not exactly an encouragement to do more of whatever you're doing. New bank formation has ceased. In the last five years, Three new banks have been formed, three new banks. There used to be 150, 200 new banks every year. And that was largely due to the low interest rate environment. And in addition, throw on the wet bank blanket of Dodd-Frank. And who in the world would, I said, who in the hell would want to go into banking? Uh, you certainly don't start a new bank under those circumstances. Pension funds are suffering. In California, we have the largest, US bank, uh, the largest U.S. pension fund called CalPERS, the Public, Employee, Public Employees Retirement Systems. They assume a rate of return of 7.5%. What did they actually get last year? 0.6%. And if you look across pension funds in your own communities or wherever it is, if you haven't done so, I urge you to do it. They all have lousy results. They're drastically underfunded at current rates. And around the world, $13 trillion is in negative interest rate territory. And so other countries have it even worse. Life insurance companies, so far, haven't had any big problems. A couple of reasons for that. We all live longer than people had expected. But uh, you know, that's one, one way to solve that problem, I guess. But <laughs> nobody's advocating that here. So life insurance companies are also underfunded. The stock market, on the other hand, has tracked very closely the QE experiments. And the people who got rich were the people who already invested in the stock market. And that's why I said earlier the uh, income inequality and the wealth inequality in the country has increased as a result of the policies of people who were very much committed in bringing about a more egalitarian, equitable, fair uh, income and wealth distribution. The exact opposite happened, one of the unintended consequences. Federal debt to GDP has exploded. Uh, and uh, well, we've seen the graphs already before. And we are moving towards the federal debt trap, uh, which uh, Professor of Adidas, again, defined elegantly in mathematical terms. But basically, all I'm saying is here, you know, if the growth rate is not as high as the interest rate, 
uh, that, uh, then you eventually get into the difficulty. And uh, at the moment, the total debt to GDP ratio is roughly 100%. The net debt to GDP ratio, taken away the Federal Reserve and the other federal institutions, it's about 85%. All the projections show that ratio to increase in the future. And while well, Professor Ofani is with whom I've agreed on virtually everything, uh, I think the Federal Reserve has to get uh, a smaller balance sheet, reduce the balance sheet, and uh, not just sit there on it. And you can do that, at least you should do it by, uh, by uh, uh, not rolling over the debt, but as the maturity, as the government bonds and the uh, mortgage-backed securities mature, uh, let them roll off. Parting thought, the monetary mischief of the last few years will have helped to pave us into a debt trap from which there will be either no escape or only a very painful escape. Thank you very much. Our finer speaker today is Daniel Thornton, who's the president of DL Thornton Economics, and uh, prior to that had a long uh, career at the St. Louis Federal Reserve, which he joined in 1981 and served there until 2014 and was a uh, vice president and, and a top economic advisor. And you know, I was a Federal Reserve reporter for, for about five years, and the St. Louis Fed was always a lot of fun to cover because it was the it was always the central it was always the regional fed bank that thought the most outside the box and was most willing to challenge the the kind of groupthink that you sometimes worried went on at the federal reserve the st louis fed was always an eclectic thinker and an always always an interesting one to follow and uh, daniel thornton is an interesting part of that heritage at the st louis fed and we're very excited to have him here today thank you very much I'd like to thank Jim and Cato for inviting me to come here today. Uh, to quote my, one of my favorite cartoons uh, shows, uh, uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle, now for something really different. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually read my introduction. I've never done this before. All right, and the reason I'm going to read it is because there's, there's more in the paper than I'm going to be able to talk about today. So I want to kind of give you incentive to read the whole paper. I apologize, too. I sent the, the, the figures in a separate file, and they didn't get replicated and put with the paper. So if you read the paper, you're going to, you might have a little trouble because you're not going to see the figure. All right, so the Federal Reserve's monetary policy response to financial crisis is a disaster. I say is because it's ongoing. All right, the financial crisis began on August 9th, 2007, when BMP Paradis suspended redemption to three investment funds. The Fed responded first by reducing the lending rate, the primary credit rate, and then by reducing the target for the federal funds rate. The target was reduced from 5.2% in September uh, 17th of 2007 to 2% on May 1st of 2008. As I expected, and in spite of these actions, the recession worsened and the financial crisis intensified. Instead of increasing the monetary base, as the, the, which is the Fed's contribution to the total supply of credit, as it should have, and as Friedman and Schwartz recommended, it sterilized the effect of its lending by selling the equivalent amount of treasuries. It did so, so it could continue to implement monetary policy through the federal funds rate. 
Indeed, the Fed attempted to sterilize its massive lending following Lehman's brother's uh, September 8th announcement, bankruptcy announcement, by having the Treasury issue supplemental financing bills and depositing the proceeds with the Federal Reserve. This topped out at $559 billion. Despite these efforts, the monetary base exploded, doubling in size from August to December 2008. As one would expect, the funds rate headed to zero well before the Fed reduced the target to zero. All right, instead of simply allowing the balance sheet to shrink back to its pre-Lehman level as the economy improved and lending repaid, the Fed engaged in a massive purchase of long-term debt known as QE, an attempt to stimulate economic growth by reducing long-term interest rates. I will show you why QE and forward guidance had essentially no effect on long-term yields. However, the Fed's low interest rate policy caused long-term yields to be lower than they would have otherwise have been. So that's kind of a, a little subtle difference. Uh, the Fed's low interest rate policy had resulted in excessive risk taking by citizens, pension funds, banks, and other financial institutions, a large and unlikely sustainable rise in asset prices, and an unprecedented increase in the money supply. It has also started allocation of economic resources in a variety of ways, many of which are impossible to know and whose effects are impossible to predict. The results are a consequence of a policy that was ill-conceived, motivated by fear, and lacked theoretical foundations. It was also predicated on a model whose central, whose central premise is without empirical support. Not only has the Fed's low interest rate policy failed to deliver, but has had terrible and potentially drastic consequences. Increasing the number of, an increasing number of analysts are beginning to realize this. Unfortunately, none are members of the FOMC. <laughs> I discuss the consequences and speculate how it might end. I conclude by speculating on the Fed's mischief is just the latest in a long history of the, what I call the credit trap, which was facilitated, if not caused by, the widespread acceptance of Keynesian economics. I begin my analysis by showing why it's extremely unlikely that QE and forward guidance had any significant effect. So that's what we're going. All right. Uh, uh, QE was supposed to work through something that Bernanke called the portfolio balance channel, the assumption that markets segment along the term structure of interest rates. But that's an odd with the last 50 years of finance theory, which assumed that there's a high degree of substitutability across the term structure. And it requires markets be segmented beyond the degree determined by the risk characteristics of the bonds and market participation, uh, market participants' aversion to risk. All right. Bernanke and others also suggest that it happened after Lehman's bankruptcy announcement, but even this is unlikely because what happened after Lehman's bankruptcy announcement was largely due to the fact that we had a large supply of toxic assets. Toxic meaning no one knew what the hell they were. All right. So basically, if you look at it, this is the, this is the, the uh, well, it shows up here. This is the next slide. Oops. All right. Bernanke and others said that QE would reduce long-term interest rates through what Bernanke called the portfolio balance challenge of reducing premiums on long-term bonds. QE was doomed to fail because the theory on which it based is bogus. All right. So basically, here's the spread. So what happened here is you see, here's where the financial crisis began. And you see the spreads got, this is spread between the, the three-month C-bill and the three-month uh, T-bill rate weekly. And you can see the spreads got pretty big, and they stayed 
uh, well above their, their, their pre-financial crisis level. And then Lehman happened. And Lehman, what happened is the spread just went through the roof because we had a lot of toxic assets. Bernanke and company were calling this a liquidity uh, um, uh, spread. It was a standard default risk spread. Banks weren't lending to other banks because they didn't even know what they owned. So how do they know what another bank loaned? They're not going to make any loans, right? So the spread it's risk spread after the initial lending that the Fed engaged in, what did it do? Well, it fell dramatically, right? And actually, by early February, or pardon me, early January, late January of 2009, that credit risk spread was back to where it was. Why? Because banks spent a lot of money finding out what they actually had in their securitized uh, mortgage funds. All right? If you look at the same thing in terms of the uh, AA, AAA corporate bond spread, it, it also exploded. It went down, and then we had the announcement of QE1, and actually it rose again. And I suspect it rose because what happened is that is the AAA fell relative to the AA for a while. I haven't, I haven't, uh, I didn't really look at that closely, but you can see by the end of the basically by September, it was back down well below its uh, uh, its um, pre um, pre Lehman level. All right. So the markets were stabilizing already when we engaged in uh, QE1 and 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 shortly thereafter. All right. Bernanke and others suggest it worked by lowering term premiums. All right. So I am not going to actually talk about uh, the evidence that this didn't happen. There's some of that in the paper and some of that in some of the things that I cite in the paper, all right? But I don't have time to talk about that. But I am going to talk a little bit about this idea that it reduced uh, uh, long-term interest rates by reducing the term premium long-term bonds because it removed a large amount of duration risk from the market. The problem with this theory is that the, is that, um, the premium on one bond relative to another, the term premium, depends on two things. It depends on the, uh, on the uh, duration risk of the two bonds and the risk aversion of market participants. Neither of these depend on the, uh, on the uh, neither these depend on the total duration in the market, right? So removing a bunch of duration from the market isn't going to have an effect. So let's say I've got, let's say we've got bonds that are, uh, let's say zero coupons from one month to 30 years. And the Fed goes in and buys everything between five and ten. All right? Well, what's the risk premium on a nine-year bond relative to eleven-year bond? Should be exactly what it was before, if the same people are in the market, because the, that spread is only determined by the relative risk characteristics of those and the risk aversion of market participants. And so, if that's exactly the same, then the spread should be exactly the same. Shouldn't have had any effect on the term premium at all. Right. <clears throat> so basically, you've got a, a, a theory that should tell you this isn't going to work. Markets are not segmented. Right. The, the term premium isn't going to be affected by the amount of duration you haul out of the market. And so it should have had no effect. However, right, um, we up here? Okay. I'm having trouble with this system here. That was maybe the reason that, uh, remember, in 2014, uh, uh, Bernanke quipped, the problem with QE is it, doesn't, it, it works in practice, but it doesn't work in theory. And the problem with QE is it doesn't work in theory, and it doesn't work in practice. <laughs> All right? 
All right, so basically, um, we're going to talk about the low interest rate policy. The low interest policy did affect long-term interest rates, and I know that because it happened way in advance of the financial crisis. All right, so I'm going to show you something that shows that it really happened with Greenspan's conundrum. All right, if you don't remember Greenspan's conundrum, this is it. Um, basically, that little circle area is, is when Greenspan noticed that we had increased the federal funds rate by about 150 basis points, actually 150 basis points exactly by then. And the 10-year Treasury did what? It actually went down just a little bit. It did nothing. And he considered about five explanations for why there would be aberrant behavior in the 10-year rate. And he rejected all of those explanations, and he called it a conundrum. Well, you can see that we raised it another 150 basis points, and really still nothing happened with the 10-year rate. So when I investigated, I said, well, why did this happen? And I did a simple thing. I regressed the change in the 10-year rate on the change in the federal funds rate, which is a common thing. Actually, it used to do that at the board all the time to show the effect of a change in the funds rate on, on long-term rates. And here's the R-square from the equation, except what I did is I let it roll. All right, so I, I, this is, I, let it, I picked a 48-month window. Actually, in the paper, it's 33 months, but it doesn't make any difference. Uh, I picked a 48-month window, and I let it roll. And you see the R-square was roughly bouncing around 20%. And then in the mid-'90s, it goes way down and essentially stays at zero. So this relationship just basically vanished. So I did a little test, statistical test to see when that change occurred. And the test came up with May as the most probable date. These are monthly data. May 1988. All right, so we're going to look at that. All right, so what did I do? Well, why, the first question is, why did it go on notice so long? And I would argue the reason is that, that these things were trending down. And when you look at the data, what dominates you is the trend, right? Dominates your eye. You see at the end here, these, these trends are beginning to flatten out. Like rates of kind of, now it becomes noticeable. Here it's less, back here it's less noticeable. So I've imposed these trends to be common, all right? So the dotted lines are the respective trends, and I imposed them to be the same, but if I estimated them freely without imposing that, they would look almost identical, all right? So what if we, let's detrend it and see what happens. Well, that's what happens if you detrend it. That vertical line there, or the dotted line, that's May 1988. So you see before May 88, what is, what's happening here? These babies are cycling together and moving very closely together. Afterwards, whoa, really, really markedly different. What happened? Why did that change? And the answer is a simple one. We started, we, meaning the FOMC, started using the federal funds rate as a policy instrument. So now what happened is the federal funds rate, I'll pull up that slide. So now what happened is the federal funds rate only changed when policymakers change policy, right? The 10-year treasury did what? It did what it always did, responded to, to, to fundamentals that the market signals were coming in. 
So it was behaving as it normally did. The thing that was different was not the aberrant behavior of the 10-year Treasury rate. The thing that was different was the aberrant behavior of the federal funds rate. All right? So what happens here? The change in the federal funds rate has a, long, a larger effect on, on short-term rates than it does on long-term rates. All right? So it's like two forces are pulling interest rates. You've got market fundamentals here pulling interest rates at the long end, and you've got the Fed now pulling interest rates at the short end. Well, the Fed's pull is stronger the shorter the term of the rate. So if you look at spreads between long-term rates, what happens is they widen. All right, so I'm going to show you the, the spread between the 10-year um, and the 5-year Treasury. All right? So what you see is the 5-year gets pulled down more than the 10, and so that spread gets bigger. All right? When you look at short rates, what happens is they all starting to collapse, and so those, those tend to get, those spreads tend to get smaller. All right? So here it is. So this is the spreads going all the way back to 62, right? So, uh, and I should also plot the federal funds rate. So the, the, the gray line is the spreads, and you can see the spreads hovering around. It's fluctuating around zero. It's more often than not positive, but not a lot positive. I think the average spread there is about 18 basis points, something like that, right? The vertical line again, oh, you can't see it because it's right on that line. <laughs> The vertical line, which is that dark line now, is May of 1988. And you see what happens here is now the spreads do what? They're positive. And when the funds rate goes down, the spreads tend to widen. As the funds rate gets back up something closer to normal, the spread comes back to something closer to normal. Right? You can also see the change in the behavior of the federal funds rate that I'm talking about. So this is the federal funds rate. And now look at it. It has this step function. Right, that looks an awful lot like plotting the target because it is like plotting the target. Funds rates staying close to the target. We're announcing, if we're not announcing, we're signaling what the target is before we start announcing it. And so what's happened here is, is you've had this distortion now. You're distorting long-term yields. If I show you the one with the spread between the 20-year and the 10-year, it looks very similar. Right? So what's happened is it, it pulls the 10-year more than the 20. Right? And so the spread widens when the funds rate goes down. Right? Now we look at the spread at the short end. Right? And this is the three-month, uh, one year versus the three-month. And you see what happened is that that spread actually narrows somewhat. Right? Because it, the pull at, at the one year is pretty strong. Three minutes. I knew I wouldn't get through this. All right, so we started allocation of resources in many ways. Actually, I'm not going to talk about that because, uh, because Bob did a heck of a good job of talking about those things. So I'm just going to show you my scary graph. All right? So this is my scary graph, which is household net worth as a percent of uh, disposable income. The trend line is based on data from 73 to uh, uh, 1994, 4, and then extrapolated. And you see we have the dot-com bubble, and then what happened? So that, the first one was all basically equity prices. Boom, it crashed. Second one was all what? Real estate prices. Well, what's the third one? It's equity prices and real estate prices. Right? 
And I didn't update this, but that little tick at the end, it's back up again. All right. All right, so this is the other thing that um, QE forced banks to accumulate extra reserve. This idea that banks are voluntarily holding excess reserve, that's just crazy. All right, and the effect of that on the money supply, whoops, didn't come up. The effect on the money supply is this. All right, so the money supply has, M1 has increased in the last eight years more than it did in the previous 48 years. All right, um, basically, um, this is this is something that that I wish I had more time to talk about, but I've got a minute left. All right. So I, well, all right. I believe that that uh, what I call the credit trap. I like credit because it's a flow, not a stock. At least it connotes a flow. I believe it's going down for 50 years or more. Here's here's part of it. This shows you the uh, federal surplus or deficit as a percent of GDP, and you see since about 1970, which is right about here someplace. Um, we've had essentially a perpetual deficit as a percent of GDP, and they tend to be getting bigger over time, except for the four years of Clinton, where we had a, we had a small surplus, right? Uh, it's also reflected, I think, in, uh, which I believe is ongoing, at the debt is now 52 times larger than it was in 70, and while GDP is only 17 times as large, so the debt to GDP ratio was 35% in 70 is now 105%. Increased reliance on credit is reflected, in, I think, in uh, underfunded and unfunded liabilities of federal, state, and local governments, financial innovations such as collateralized debt obligations, securitization, credit default swaps, which I talk about in the paper, and um, There are a bunch of contributing factors, but I really blame Keynesian economics, because in Keynesian economics, the cure is always what? Spend more, save less, more debt, more borrowing. All right, that's where we're at. Thank you for listening. All right, we're going to open it up for some questions. Please wait to be called on, because they are going to bring a microphone around. Uh, it's very important to get to the point of your question quickly and not make a speech because lunch comes after this. And so the longer the question, the more we have to wait to actually eat. Uh, let's get started. Let's start right here. Hi, uh, I'm Chris Inglis. I'm a CPA. Uh, I've been trying to figure up some numbers being an accountant. And uh, I came up with a couple con uh, calculations. I want to see if this, these are calculations are true. And the government debt, it went from um, it's increased about nine or ten trillion over the last eight years or so, and that's about fifty percent of that I think is being financed uh, by the Federal Reserve's QE. Um, so basically, I think what's happening is there the growth of government and the growth of uh, you know more of a socialist type state is being enabled by the Federal Reserve. I just wanted to see if that's if that's actually what's happening, which I think it is, um, and I do agree with the, one of the speakers. Uh, uh, Mr. Orfanides, that uh, they need to control fiscal policy. And the other one is, I saw that the GDP growth in dollar terms, uh, they include government spending and GDP growth. And if you look at the dollar growth in GDP, it's actually less than the federal deficit. So I think the entire growth we've had, the little 1% we've had recently, is completely from government deficits, um, which is also financed basically by you know, money out of nothing. So I just wanted to see if those two things are true. Thank you. Who wants to? 
Do you have any thoughts on? Uh, well, so um, let me just reiterate. Um, we do have a debt problem uh, in uh, in much of the industrialized uh, world, and and you are right. I'm going to generalize this this statement. In virtually everywhere in the industrialized world, uh, the debt situation today is much worse than it was before the global financial crisis. That's a given. Uh, the question is, uh, should we blame central banks uh, and the QE policies they are doing for this situation? Here is where I would say that I don't think that would be uh, uh, that would be fair. Uh, uh, the central banks, uh, in uh, in the examples I, I've talked about, the Fed, BOJ, ECB. They have to deal with maintaining price stability. So my reading uh, of the situation is that to the extent uh, central banks are expanding their balance sheet as part of monetary policy aimed to deliver price stability, however that is defined, 2%, 1%, or whatever, uh, that I consider as, uh, as, within, as within the rules. I would, uh, I would projecting forwards, if it were the situation, that uh, inflation exceeds uh, central banks' defined price stability objectives and central banks continue to have accommodative policy, then uh, I, would, uh, I would start uh, accusing central bankers for enabling uh, this, uh, this, uh, this misbehavior uh, by governments. But right now, I don't really see the evidence they're suggesting that. I see the evidence they're suggesting that we have to focus our attention on fiscal authorities to maintain sustainability, central bank actions, uh, for the most part, uh, since the crisis, can be seen as providing the accommodation that may be necessary simply to uh, uh, keep the economy from, uh, from deflating. Let's take one from the left here. Uh, Mike Mork at Mork Capital Management. Uh, my question would be is since uh, it seems like the targeting of interest rates has caused a misallocation of capital and it would be better to let interest rates float so that we can have a natural level and have capital and resources used like they should be, what would you target if you let interest rates float? Well, I, <clears throat> I don't have a good idea about what the target. Um, you know, before we did all this, we kind of implemented monetary, say, with very loose words like tighter or easier monetary policy. Uh, and basically, those were code words for we would, add, we would add a little bit through open market operations or drain a little bit from open market operations. And basically, we let the funds rate do whatever it did, right, um, and go with the market. I think we ought to return to that, but... That becomes, that becomes tricky now because we've kind of already conditioned the market to think about what? Us controlling interest rates. I actually have a paper, actually a couple papers, where I talk about the fact that the Fed couldn't possibly really control interest rates. It's theoretically, um, it's, it's really an impossibility to think the Fed can control interest rates. The way to think about this is if we think we control interest rates, why aren't we targeting the 10-year Treasury? Why don't we just buy all the 10-year treasuries at one price and sell them at, or, or buy or sell at a given price and we can fix the, we can fix the interest rate? Why aren't we doing that? Yeah. Uh, so I think that's, that's a mistake. I also want to correct something that I think uh, with Athanasio said that I kind of disagree with, but it's, it's a common 
thing in, in, um, that people talk about, and that is that we, we have a zero lower bound like it was something that was imposed on us from the outside. No, I, my president, Jim Bullard, made that comment at, at, a, at a conference one time, and I, I corrected him. I said, Jim, we could get out of the zero lower bound anytime we want. All we have to do is sell off. Zero lower bound is something that central banks imposed on themselves. It's not something that God gave, right? Didn't come down from some high office. It's something the Fed imposed on itself. They drove the funds right to zero by creating a massive amount of excess reserves. So banks don't finance loans in the old-fashioned way by issuing CDs, large, uh, large negotiation, uh, negotiable CDs. They've got so many excess reserves, they find all, finance all their lending out of excess reserves. Right? We take those excess reserves away, the federal funds rate will seek its own market, its, its own level. If we don't target it, it'll just go up to a level. Zero lower bound is something that we, that the bank, central bankers impose. It's not something that was imposed on them. Actually, Athanasius, do you want to respond to that real quick? Uh, well, yeah. So it's, uh, uh, I would like to clarify uh, the, uh, the, the reason why I have the zero lower bound. This is the existence of currency. So. There was a question on, on India uh, uh, earlier this, this morning. I mean, sure, if, if governments and central banks eliminated all currency, uh, then interest rates uh, could go negative. That would eliminate the zero bond. But as long as we have uh, currency, and I think uh, most of us would continue to want to have uh, some form of, uh, of currency so that it's not being taxed uh, with negative interest rates, then the zero bond uh, is a real uh, constraint on, on monetary policy. I would agree that if, if central banks do not want to ease monetary policy, they can raise interest rates. There is no constraint there. But the zero lower bound is very real. If uh, central banks want to uh, create uh, more accommodative conditions than they can do uh, with, uh, with the, uh, with the uh, uh, short-term nominal interest rate uh, around uh, zero. Let me, let me uh, respond also to the question on the, uh, uh, on the target. I mean, ultimately, uh, monetary policy eases or, tighten, or tightens uh, monetary conditions through operations on its balance sheet. There is no unique summary statistic of what makes conditions easy or tight. Short-term interest rates are one proxy, but it's just a proxy. The size of the balance sheet is another proxy. Um, so those who are in, in, in the technical aspects of central bank operations uh, would know what eases and what tightens conditions at any point in time. I don't think we, we should hold them to one specific summary indicator that doesn't exist. I think we can simplify things by going back to, uh, to the policy prescriptions that uh, someone like uh, uh, Knut Wicksell had given at the end of the 19th century, focusing again on price stability. Uh, if we insist that central banks deliver price stability, however they define that, then their job uh, actually becomes quite simple. If price stability is threatened in the sense of inflation rising higher than you want, then you use your balance sheet to tighten monetary policy. This could be by raising the Fed funds rate, if you want to do it like that, or you could shrink the balance sheet without changing the Fed funds rate. Either way, you know that you can tighten monetary conditions and maintain price stability. If inflation falls, then you want to ease monetary policy. You can cut the Fed funds rate. If it's already at zero, you raise your balance sheet. Again, these are the technical aspects of operation that I don't think we should be as much focused on specific indicators. What we should be more focused on is, is the results. We should demand that central banks deliver price stability and we should hold them accountable if they don't. I think Bob wanted to weigh in here too, and then we'll have time for one more question. 
Well, the question of Samankwedi was, you know, which uh, tools should be used, what should be the right target? In the, uh, until the mid 80s, uh, and you identified the uh, breakpoint there, uh, it was really monetary supply, money supply targeting, as recommended by Milton Friedman that the Federal Reserve was pursuing. That was how Paul Volcker broke the back of the inflation of the 1970s. Reduce the money supply, I mean reduce the growth in the money supply. So uh, at the same time, however, there were vast changes occurring in the U.S. financial industry. Money market funds, mutual funds were in invented and so on. And so we said the link between the money supply and GDP is no longer stable. And those changes, we tried the, the Federal Reserve then to overcome by looking at interest rates. And for the long term, I don't think that is the right way to do it. Everybody knows that if you target interest rates, you get yourself into trouble in the long run. So getting back to money supply targeting and, if necessary, offsetting velocity changes due to inflation or regulation, that's the way to go. So we've got time for one more. Who's got the most incisive question in the whole room? <laughs> uh, back here, the lady in the white. <clears throat> Thank you. I'm Patricia Sands from George Mason University. Uh, my question to Professor Orfanides, it sounded to me like you've given us a story that starts in the middle. Like once upon a time, there was a central bank who was surprised by unsound fiscal policy. And then it had to do something. Is that so? Is that how it is? I mean, is the central bank's role to just put out fires generated by the, by the fiscal authorities? And if someone would please define for me, what is the reason for the central bank to exist in the first place? Is there a consensus in this? Is there a reason to be? Um, so, so let me give a brief answer, and I'm sure that the other two panelists would, uh, uh, would, have, uh, would have elements to add to, uh, to the second part of your question. So as the first part of the question, again, so our topic is monetary mischief and the debt trap. And I worry a lot about the possibility that bad fiscal policy may end up forcing central banks, either in this country or elsewhere, to monetize the debt that would create tremendous instability, that would create inflation, that would destroy growth, which is what I would care about in the long run. So what I was describing is uh, uh, the dilemmas that central banks face. And I think we should understand that sometimes uh, uh, we do not get the best, uh, we don't get first best outcomes. If you start with situations of terrible fiscal policy over a number of years, and you're asking the question, how can central banks avoid debt dynamics blowing up? Then you have the second best or third best solution, which may be financial repression. It would not be my first best solution, but I, I, I think it's, it's something we should not be dismissing if the alternative is either debt blows up or uh, uh, high inflation. So this is why I want to say this is not something that has happened now. This has been happening uh, throughout monetary uh, history uh, with, uh, with, with fiat money, and the question is where should our focus is? So I end by stressing once again, our focus when we are worried about the debt trap should be to strengthen what fiscal policy uh, is doing. That's the source of the problem. 
Uh, we've just run over on our time. Do either of you want to weigh in very quickly? Well, I fully agree. It cannot be the role of the central bank to bail out the governments. Otherwise, you wind up like Venezuela, like Germany in the 1920s, and uh, it's the road to disaster. You've got to focus on price stability and, the, and not 2% inflation, and that's the mandate of Congress. Dan, did you want to weigh in? Well, I'm going to weigh in on one, one more point. It's not exactly related to the question, but we, what got us here is we believe that monetary policy works through the interest rate channel, as if lowering interest rates is really going to make a huge difference. Right? So what happened is once we got them to zero, we had to, we had to figure out something else to do, and so we did QE, and then now we want negative rates, right? We got to get them lower. There's a long history that shows that interest rates are not, and spending is not very sensitive to interest rates. So you're going to have to get a really big change in interest rates to produce a big, large change in, in, in spending and output. So why are we even, why are we doing all of this? It's crazy to think that we're lowering interest rates 25 basis points or 50 basis points or even 100 basis points is going to have a huge effect to me, seems insane. On that note, thanks to uh, all three of our panelists. <clears throat>